Uh, welcome everybody to the first uh, World Religions Club meeting the school year. Uh, Balin, who's the moderator, take it away and uh, lay out the uh, time schedule for this debate. Uh, we will be opening with uh, Liam for 10 minutes as the opening statement. Uh, we will be moving on then to Xavier as the second person. Again, 10 minutes for the opening statement. Then rebuttals starting with Liam then Xavier each five minutes crossfires Liam Xavier ten minutes long and then finally we will be closing with starting with Liam five minutes Xavier another five minutes closing statements yep all right awesome uh, Liam you have the floor whenever you are ready whenever you begin Dale will start the time the existence and mortal danger of eternal punishment is mentioned countless times from the mouth of Jesus himself throughout the New Testament. Seven times it says that, in quotes, they will be thrown out into a place with much weeping and gnashing of teeth. This testimony is corroborated by both Peter and Paul in their interpretation of the Gospels. And not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, the Jews referred to hell as Sheol and mentioned its place deep in the earth. It was known to be the opposite of the upper sphere of light and life, known as the heavens. In the Old Testament, the, especially in the Psalms, uh, Sheol was named as a place you would go temporarily, kind of. Like Job mentioned that he would go and God would save him from Sheol, as if more of an inner state than a physical place. But through when that transitioned to the New Testament, it has been made clear that Jesus and his disciples fully understood hell to be an eternal dwelling place for the, both the body and the soul of those who were not obedient to God. All right, uh, thank you, Liam, for that opening statement. I will now be presenting my own opening statement for 10 minutes. Uh, I'll time myself on my iPad just so I can keep track and um, for my own self. And then, Balin, you can get the time, time ready whenever I start. All right, in this opening statement, I will be supplying five arguments for universal salvation from the Bible itself. A quick disclaimer, however, is that I, is that I do not necessarily hold this view, uh, but I'm simply arguing on behalf of it because I find it to be an interesting sort of alternative look at how someone could interpret scripture. Again, I'm not actually supporting it in real life. I'm simply uh, playing the devil's advocate, no pun intended. With that being said, let us proceed to the contentions. Contention number one, the word eternal as written in Koine Greek, the original language of the New Testament, has multiple meanings. The term eternal in Koine Greek is, is adios and contains the following meanings. One, eternal. Two, ancient. Three, remote. Four, enduring. Five, divine. Six, heavenly. And seven, related to the future world. The corny Greek term ion is also re referred to in various passages that supposedly teach eternal damnation. However, the word has also been used in a plethora of different ways throughout the classics, from Plato to Aristotle to Homer, as well as first century Jewish intellectuals like the historian Titus Flavius Josephus and theologian and philosopher Philo of Alexandria. Despite these contrasts and the possible evolution of the term ion from meaning a shorter finite period of time um, to an entire lifetime to an infinite period of time, the term ion, especially in the case of philosophical texts, is defined as quote, the eternity of time that is concurrent within the universe, end quote. In essence, when the, when the universe ends, quote unquote, eternity is done. This notion plays in very well to the theology I, I argue for in contention number five. With that being said, let us move on to contention number two, which explains why there is reason to doubt the term, quote unquote, eternity in the Old Testament actually means an infinite span of time. Contention number two, the word, quote unquote, eternal as written in biblical 
slash classical Hebrew, which is olam, does not refer to unending punishment in hell. Olam, simply put, is the duration of time in a particular saga of salvation history or the history of the world at large, but does not refer to, to otherworldly timelines, restricting its focus to the creative world in which we live. This term can relate to the remote past, like Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, which says, quote, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old men of renown, end quote. Here the word, quote, olam is used in a way that clearly does not denote an infinite period of time. Olam refers to the end of one's life, as in Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, which says, quote, Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever, end quote. Here, quote, unquote, forever, or quote, unquote, olam, means, quote, until death, since the Hebrews viewed the afterlife as the land of Sheol, where human beings resided as shades in higher and lesser degrees of holiness based upon their holiness in this life, it would not make sense to continue to quote-unquote enslave or more accurately employ another as an indentured servant in a realm where one would be awaiting for the advent of the Messiah and the God-man to uh, to free uh, open the gates of heaven through the atonement. Another example of the usage of Olam is Isaiah chapter 31 verses 14 through 15 which reads, quote, the fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and water and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks till the spirit is poured on us from high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the, the fertile field seems like a forest. End quote. Evidently, the term quote-unquote forever means, quote, for as long as the earth exists, end quote, because we know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that the old heaven, the old earth and heaven will pass away, as stated in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, quote, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, end quote, in Mark 13, 31, which says the same words identically. Perhaps a very obtuse example of olam in relation to a non-eternal time is Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 4, which says, quote, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever, end quote. This obviously contradicts what Jesus said in Matthew, chapter 24, verse 35, and Mark, chapter 13, verse 31, if one were to take Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 4, to mean forever in a literal sense. In fact, the term olam is never used as the subject or the object of, this, of, of a sentence throughout the entire Hebrew Old Testament, except for Ecclesiastes 3.11, which says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God, fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Olam is clearly defined not as eternity, but something like, quote, time until a horizon point, or time surrounding a specific finite amount of time, as implied in its adverbial and adjectival specifications. In essence, Olam refers to time within creation as opposed to time outside creation, which would relate to heaven, hell, and purgatory, where time is either non-existent or transcended because there are spiritual realms independent of or above the fourth dimension. Contention number three. Uh, because 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19-21 through 21 affirms universal salvation for those who died before Christ, explicitly mentioning those who died in the state of sin, it is possible that the same rule could be applied to all those who died after Christ. This contention is very short and is simply a quick exegetical uh, uh, interpretation of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19-21. through 21. Let us read this passage. I'm reading from the NASB, which is the most literal rendering from the Greek. Uh, quote, in which... He also went and made proclamation to the souls in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism, bapti baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. End quote. Clearly, Jesus descends into hell to free those who were disobedient to God in the days of Noah. 
Contention number four. Saint Clement of Alexandria, a universalist, may be a useful source of, for biblical interpretation on this matter, specifically in relation to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, because he possessed secret teachings from Jesus Christ. First, let us establish Saint Clement's ethos as a valid interpreter of sacred scripture. If Saint Clement had written at the time of the Apostolic Fathers, then he would have, which is around the year 100 uh, to maybe around 120 or 125, he would have had a, just a, a quick proximity um, to the original apostles and their disciples. However, Liam may rightly point out that because of the fact that he that he was born in the year 150 it appears that he was you know he was active around well he would have been born 100 120 years after roughly speaking the resurrection and ascension and so forth seeming to invalidate his credentials however um saint clement actually possesses a claim to apostolic teaching that goes even further than most saints i will not be reading the quote the entire quotation from saint clement now from one of his writings because it was very long I would be more happy to share in the crossfire portion um, of the rebuttal, or rather, or the rebuttal portion, because I believe that it shows that St. Clement of Alexandria possessed a secret gospel written by St. Mark that provided secret insights into reality. To summarize what St. Clement wrote, he stated that after traveling to Rome to record St. Peter's uh, eyewitness accounts in the Gospel of Mark, St. Mark traveled to Alexandria after Peter's martyrdom, where he founded the Catechetical School, School of Alexandria, of which St. Clement was a dean and composed a, quote, more spiritual gospel for the use of those who were being, who were being perfected, end quote, composing a second Gospel of Mark from secret oral tradition and or secret extra-canonical uh, written sources, uh, which uh, included extra stories about Jesus Christ and the saints from him as well, which teachers would use to, quote, lead the hearers into the innermost sanctuary of that truth hidden by seven veils, end quote. After St. Mark died, he sent his, he left his secret gospel to the church in Alexandria, quote, where it, where it even yet is more carefully guarded, being read only to those who are being initiated into the great mysteries, end quote. Well, this ethos, with this ethos established, let us read, uh, comment, let's read his commentary on 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, in relation to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, which he directly quotes in the text, quote, uh, and not only for our sins, that is, for those of the faithful is the Lord the propitiator, does he uh, say, but for the, but also for the whole world. Indeed, he saves all, but some he saves, converting them by punishments. Other how, others, however, who follow voluntarily, he saves with dignity of honor, so that every knee shall be, should bow to him of things in heaven and on earth and things under the earth. That's a reference to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. That is angels, men, and souls that... Uh, that before his advent have departed from his temporal life, end quote. With this in mind, let us read Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, which reads, quote, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. While Clement, well, St. Clement interprets Philippians chapter 2, verses, verse 10, as a reference to Christ's descent to Hades, as opposed to a future descent into Hades once more, he still uses it as a proof text for universal salvation, arguing that Christ will basically repeat what he did when he uh, descended into hell at a later time. Uh, when he finally empties hell forever, likely at the end of the world. I would like to point out that, as translated from the NASB, which is a translation of the Bible, which includes the most literal rendering in Greek, the text used uses the Greek equivalent of will, implying future tense in relation to Christ's descent into hell. Uh, we, we've already read that passage. Um, which, which passage is that? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Um, also, what's even more theological, also another thing to kind of compound onto that is that uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 11 are indeed a pre-Pauline creed, meaning that this would have been a, a, a creed that was recited by the earliest apostles, possibly taught to them by Christ himself during either his earthly ministry or directly after the resurrection and directly before the ascension. So it's obviously pre-Pauline, meaning that it was basically a super early uh, piece of 
uh, writing that wasn't even writing in that time. It was actually simply oral tradition, so it was very early. Um, I'd like to go on to my last contention and simply begin it, which is that I don't have much time. I have about 30 seconds, but contention number five is that even without St. Clement of Alexandria's exegesis, we can use Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 in conjunction with other verses in the Bible to form a theologically coherent case for universalism. Given I only have about 20 seconds left, I would like to just list out those verses, and I'll expound upon them later in my rebuttal. These verses are Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, through 9, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and of course, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, and then 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, and I'll synthesize all those together in my rebuttal. Thank you. All right. Balin, would you like to introduce the next section? We will now begin the five-minute rebuttal. To begin, Xavier's contention number one about the word eternal in Koine Greek. Um, in all of the references in which Jesus mentions hell and people going to hell, he doesn't actually use this word, so this contention isn't applicable to the arguments that I will be making. Same with contention number two about the word olam. I only reference the Old Testament once from the book of Job. Job chapter 24, verse 19. Dryness and heat snatch away the snow waters as Sheol snatches those who have sinned. Although it doesn't mention eternity or any length of time in that, Jesus does confirm an eternal hell in the New Testament. Ah, yes. Contention number three is probably the most difficult to argue against because it is from the New Testament, which is what I'm drawing from, because any argument taken from the Old Testament, you can just say, oh, it was fulfilled or changed from the Old Testament to the New, but if you take an argument from the New Testament, it's harder to contest against. So contention number three, he says, because 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 through 21 affirms universal salvation for all those who died in Christ, it, it, it explicitly mentions those who have died in a state of sin in the Old Testament and Jesus going down to proclaim to them. So, I also found this, this doc, not document, I found this verse while I was doing some research beforehand, and it does say that Jesus will go, go down and make a proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God was kept waiting in the days of Noah. This was during the construction of the ark, and it, the, it, all, it goes on to say, in which a few, that is eight people, I'm assuming that's Noah's family, were brought safe, safely through the water. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. I would argue that verse 21 basically denies that all souls in hell will be saved, it, it only states a single instance in which Jesus went down to the dead and proclaimed to them. And even the word proclaimed is debatable whether or not that means he saved them or just told them something. Um, and so in First Peter, right after the verse he uses to affirm universal salvation, it says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So that indicates that you must be baptized in order to avoid hell. Now, on to contention four about St. Clement of Alexandria, who is a universalist. I don't actually know how to rebut this. It's a lot of stuff about secret texts, which 
is interesting. He, 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 as Xavier mentioned, he wasn't alive during the actual time of Jesus, which takes away his, like he, which makes him less credible than the, the authors of the, um, of, of St. Paul and St. Peter, because they actually were alive during the time of Jesus. And St. Paul, although wasn't, never met Jesus, he definitely was one of the greatest apostles. Or he calls himself an apostle. He's not really an apostle. Well, from the St. Clement argument, it says that every knee shall bow to him. Um, so I'd like to talk about what that means. So when it says every knee in heaven and on earth and below the earth will now will bow to, at the name of Jesus Christ, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be raised into heaven so as to worship him. It only means that they will be, that they will understand their place and they will give him homage almost like you can you can bow down to jesus even if you're in hell it doesn't mean that you have to be saved in order to do that oh yes philippians philippians 10 10 philippians 2 10 through 11 let me check that out really quick am i over time i feel like i'm over time so that at the name of jesus oh that was the thing i just quote okay never mind um Okay, so even in hell you can perceive the glory of God because there are two ways to perceive the glory of God through the beatific vision, which is in heaven, but also through the oh, okay, eternal damnation which you experience in hell, ex- when which you experience his his just justice glory. Like, cool, nice merciful thing. Good. All right. Now you contend what I said. I didn't have very long things to say, but you contend. If you want, it's right at the top here. Yeah. It's that little paragraph right there. Okay, sure. And then all my sources are there. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. My rebuttal begins now. Uh, with that being said, I will begin my rebuttal by basically going over my uh, fifth contention, and then, if time allows, uh, contest or explicitly answering or attempting to explicitly answer points that Liam stated during his opening uh, statement. Uh, with that being said, uh, contention number five, uh, just to reiterate, is even if, of course, Saint Clement of Alexandria's exegesis is wrong, and there was actually no secret text that letter was forged, because there's some scholarly debate on whether or not that letter is authentic. Um, we can still use Philippians two, chapter two, chapter two, verses ten through eleven, in conjunction with other verses in the Bible to form a theologically coherent structure for universalism. If we examine Philippians 2, uh, 10 through 11, we see that every person in heaven, earth, and hell will worship Jesus. Uh, this starkly contrasts the notion that, there will, that the damned will never see excuse me, God once again once they enter hell or else how would they bow before the Son of Man if there was no perception of his glory. Now I understand that Liam and I um, clash on that point a little bit, uh, but for the sake of argument or for the sake of giving this contention out, let's just uh, address that later on the crossfire. Philippians 2, uh, chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 must signify the emptying of hell because 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says that humans will be excluded from the glory of God, yet the glory of Christ, who is God and the second person of the Trinity, will be revealed to those in hell as they will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Second Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 says, quote, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, end quote. Interestingly, the idea that confessing that, that Christ is Lord is what is necessary for salvation is stated in, in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and, and is exactly what we see the dead, the dead doing in Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 through 11. Here is Romans 10 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, again, Philippians chapter two, verses ten through eleven. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. End quote. 
Therefore, anyone who professes this fact is saved. This is not a contradiction of Hebrews 9.27, which says that one is judged immediately after death. All I'm saying is that this judgment is not permanent, as I hope was, was evident with my arguments in regards to uh, the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, therefore, we must interpret uh, Hebrews 9.27 as resulting in judgment for the damned immediately after death. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, explaining that the damned will be excluded from the glory of God. Philippians 2.10-11, stating that Christ will, in the future tense, reveal his Lord to those in hell something that could not happen if the punishment is literally eternal and then the dead confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord thus saving them in accordance with Romans 10.9 and coupling all this data with varied usages and highly technical definition of adios, ion, and olam. Um, Furthermore, we also have uh, justification that Christ, uh, once in salvation history beforehand, has saved the damned in hell, those who died outside of friendship with God in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, uh, as quoted from the NASB, but I've already quoted that, so I'm not going to mention it anymore. Uh, lastly, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4, chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, appears to reveal a highly universalist soteriology, that is salvation theology, reading, quote, that is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hopes in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe, end quote. Um, so that sounds like a very universalist saying as far as I am concerned. Uh, Balin, how much time do I have left? Minute 35. Okay. Um, again, I believe that uh, in regards to um, uh, seven times in the New Testament, uh, Christ mentions the possibility of being thrown into hell uh in which there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe that I have mentioned before the sort of uh, varied usages of eternal in the Koine Greek. Uh, furthermore, to, at least to some degree, this does sort of uh, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, because the uh, New Testament writers use the Septuagint, which was a uh, a Greek version of the New Testament, There's kind of, or Old Testament. There's sort of copious amounts of evidence to prove that they use that as opposed to the classical Hebrew uh, text. Um, with that being said, even in the classical uh, Hebrew text, I've given definitions for the term olam and have used a variety of passages in which olam does not mean eternal, yet is still used. Um, with that being said, we can move over to the crossfire now. So, Xavier, and you, can start the timer for 10, yeah. you um, of course, brought up First Peter again in, in, in corroboration with all of those other sources. Can you briefly summarize that argument? You don't have to cite any of the sources, just say like, Briefly summarize the steps of the argument that you're moving from. So is this basically just, is this only First Peter or do you want the whole Contention 5? That Contention 5, basically. Okay, so basically what Contention 5 states is that because of the fact that in, because of the fact that Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 says that hell, that says, quote, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might. So they are completely removed, that's end quote. So they're completely removed from Christ and the Father and the Spirit. Uh, just, they're, there's no, they're removed from their presence and they're removed from their glory. Um, that indicates just a total shutting off in hell. However, if you read Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, and we read it in the NASB translation, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And then it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in order for this to happen, it appears that there is some sort of, um, there, that Christ himself is in the chasm of hell that everyone is bowing to him and confessing. 
uh, to the glory of God the Father, that, that he is Lord. And then what I'm saying is that if we read Romans 10, 9, it says whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes that he has been raised from the dead by the Father, he is, that, that individual is saved. So it appears to me that if, when we synthesize all these together, we had also in conjunction with Hebrews 9.27, which says that one is um, judged right after death, one is judged right after death, one goes to hell, um, one and then but one is shut off from the glory of God, and then at some point in time, everyone confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then by definition, one would be saved. However, uh, this relies on two kind of presuppositions: one that um, the, the biblical, the biblical Greek and the biblical Hebrew imply temporality for hell, and that Jesus is probably going to repeat First Peter three nineteen through twenty one again. Okay, where does it say that they have to witness the glory of God to to bow down to Him? That is the flaw in my in my argument. That that is the leap of, with that is the that is the hole I have to fill. Okay, that sounds. It seems like a pretty important hole because it is a pretty important hole I have to fill. Your argument says that they are cut off from the glory of God, and therefore they must be raised in order to bow down to Him. But there is no evidence that shows they have to experience His glory in order to bow down to Him. So there's no reason to say that they can't acknowledge Jesus as Lord while suffering the eternal punishment, because you can acknowledge someone as Lord because. You, you know firsthand the, the punishment it, in, in um, let me find the quote, let me find the quote. Um, in order to fill out that hole, however, I basically, I basically use, of course, the, the, the biblical Greek and the biblical Hebrew, as well as Clement's interpretation to sort of, um, to sort of um, fill in that material, yeah. Um, in Matthew 20, chapter 23, verse 33, or sorry, Matthew 10, verse 28, it says, And do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. This, this, is, this just indicates that a fear of God, which is one way in which you can acknowledge the glory of God while still not being in his presence, because they fear him because he has destroyed their body and soul. Then, there are many times within the Old Testament that it says people will go to hell, but your argument says that that's only temporal, that it, it's, it's temporary and that they will be raised up and will confess the name of Jesus and be saved. So, am I correct in saying that? Yes, the argument is basically a, a temporary hell. Basically, pick, picture uh, purgatory, except pick, picture hell as, as a, yeah, hell is cleansing. The great divorce, basically. Um, yes. So, in, I would like to re, rebut that. So, in Revelation, yes. chapter 20, verse 10 through 15, I'm just going to read it. Or, no, I'm going to read, okay. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled. This is obviously God. Yes. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne which means that the dead has been resurrected, a belief held by Paul and Peter, yes. which could be the time in which first, um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 indicates that every knee shall bow. It can be at this time in Revelation when all yes. of the souls were resurrected from the dead. And it says all the dead, great and small, were standing before the throne. 
that can be the moment in which they, they bow down to him. Then it says, the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So every dead was resurrected and put before God to be judged. And they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this lake of fire, it says earlier in this same verse that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And it says that anyone's name not written in this book will be thrown into this lake of fire. This indicates a resurrection from the dead in which they would be able to glorify God, bowing their knees, which goes along with your interpretations of the scriptures. But then it says, after which anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life, which is a judgment according to their deeds, will be thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and death. Yes. That's obviously a gaping hole in my argument. I do not hold this thing in real life. Actually, not for those reasons, although you basically just... uh, single-handedly um, really exposed, hey, why this is uh, completely wrong even more. Uh, for me, I don't really hold it for soteriological reasons. I don't think it's very co- consistent with the atone- with the atonement theology. But um, anyways, um, perhaps we could, we could visit uh, contention four. Uh, yes. I mean, obviously, it's your, it's your time to do the crossfire. And what I think it's still important to mention um, uh, St. Clement of Alexandria's secret uh, teachings, um, because in, in a letter, um, he, he, met, he uh, says... Quote, as for Mark, then during Peter's stay in Rome, he wrote an account of the Lord's doings, not, however, declaring all of them, nor hinting at the secret ones, but selecting what we, uh, what he thought most useful for increasing the faith of those who were being instructed. So that would be him writing the Gospel of Mark. That's mm-hmm. very consistent with other church tradition, that, that, Mark, that Mark is Peter's scribe who writes and recounts his sayings. Uh, Papias uh, mentions this, or at least Eusebius mentions Papias saying that. Anyways, but I'll continue. But when Peter died a martyr, Mark came over to Alexandria, bringing both his own notes and those of Peter, from which he transferred to his former book the things suitable to whatever makes for progress toward knowledge. Thus he composed a more spiritual gospel for the use of those who were being perfected. Nevertheless, he yet did not divulge the things not to be uttered, nor did he write down the hierophantic teaching of the Lord, but to, but to the stories already written, he added yet others and more in certain sayings of which he knew the interpretation would, as of mystic, I can't pronounce that word, lead the hearers into the innermost sanctuary of that truth hidden by seven veils. Thus in some he prepared matters neither grudgingly nor incautiously, in my opinion, and dying he left his composition to the church in Alexandria, where, where it even yet is most carefully guarded, being read only to those who are initiated into the great mysteries. I do have a problem with that. Yes. The word secret. Secret documents, like you certainly, like the fact that they are secret means yes. that you do not have access to them. Yes. So there, there may or may not be documents out there written by Mark yes. that do not corroborate the, the current biblical interpretation. But the thing is, we don't know what's in those documents. We don't know if they if they if they're talking about hell or if they're talking about an, a, a certain parable. He said, "They they the fact that they are secret means that it is almost impossible to use them for an argument, because um, Mark was one of the main writers, but most of the times in which Jesus mentions hell is in Matthew, okay. and so this this." secret text of Mark would not be applicable to the arguments from Matthew. 
And even if it did exist, we have no way of knowing that it is applicable to the arguments about hell. My, sort of my argumentation would be that we have St. Clement and basically the, an origin, his student, who obviously is a, was a controversial figure, origin of Alexandria, um, who succeeded him as the dean of the catechetical school directly after Clement. Um, but this catechetical school was founded by John Mark, St. John Mark, who was the author of the Gospel of Mark. This is a tradition that's held by cops and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. I guess you can continue that over into my uh, or, um, crossfire. But my, my point would be that basically what we have is we have a uh, school being founded by this individual, and within that school we have, or the dean of that school writes a letter that says that there is a secret document that they possess, uh, and this school is known for its universalism. So it seems to me that we have we have a decently high degree of apostolic succession, to some degree. Yes, and so you're saying that because this this school has a document that no other school has, yes. and the only difference between this school and the others is their universalism, it, it, it's likely to assume that this document is the reason for that. Not necessarily the reason, but that the teachings within the, but the, te but the fact that, ba bas yes, basically. Okay, your turn for crossfire. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, th th this is so far as proof that you can research the heck out of the universalist position and the traditional position is still going to win even if there's less research. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll still attempt to hold my ground here, acting in character. Um, with that being said, um, would you agree that there are multiple different usages of the word eternal? Yes, I would agree that, except the one used in um, the quote from, let me see, it was one of the quotes you did use. Yes. It is, um, I can't remember where it is. I will find it. It's in Second Thessalonians. You Do you know that quote? Yes, that, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Can you read that really quick? Yes. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 reads as follows. Um, Quote, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord from the glory of his might. End okay. quote. In that quote, yes. I, I went to the Greek text from this, and using Strong's concordance of definitions for yes. this, the word used for everlasting there is uh, aeneos, which the only two definitions are age-long and eternal. And so in usage throughout the Bible, it always means eternal and everlasting. It's never been used in another sense. And it means practically unending. So. Is, is it possible it could not it could not be age long? There is a possibility, but it is it is slim. Yes, um, that's precisely one of the problems with this argumentation that I'm using. Uh, all right. Um, with that being said, um, would you agree that the, that, the, that the term olam, as used in the biblical Hebrew, uh, does have multiple interpretations? Yet still used uh, in some cases, it means it it. Uh, in some cases, it refers to basically a period of time that is all of the world, and sometimes it refers to sort of periods like back in the day. Yes, I would agree with your interpretation of the word alam in the Old Testament. Excellent. What is your view on St. Clement of Alexandria as a valid interpreter of this verse in the Universalist uh, school? I have not done enough research on St. Clement. I didn't research him before this debate, but from what I've heard of your position, I do... I do not hold someone's interpretation of the Bible to be um, like applicable to my life if they're not willing to 
show the, the sources that influence their interpretation or the knowledge that they're using to interpret the Bible in that way. It seems rather secretive or yes. like, it would be a lot easier if we could see the sources he's using. Yeah, it'd be a lot easier if we could, if we could see him pull out that second Gospel of Mark. That could be pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, pull it out of his shoe. <laughs> um, with that being said, uh, let's see. Um, would you agree? So we would obviously disagree on Philippians chapter uh, two verses chapter two verses ten through eleven. You would argue that that basically occurs um, that occurs that occurs right before individ, that, that occurs right before people are thrown into the lake of fire or sent off to heaven. Yeah, the the end of times, the last judgment. Okay, excellent. Um, then, um, yes, I think that would be about it for my crossfire. Um, with that being said, um, Liam can go on and do his closing statement for five minutes, and then I can do my closing statement for five minutes, and then we can be uh, done. Okay. Now for my closing statement. So, Xavier's five contentions to the traditionalist interpretation of eternal punishment, um, they are rather weak in essence because the strongest of them which is the fifth contention um, this is the strongest because the fourth uses um, evidence that we can't even look at through an interpreter that claims to have a secret gospel which is not very which is not the most credible thing that this saint has ever done um, and then the first second and third all are based off of an interpretation of a word that is one of the very lesser used and niche inter interpretations or translations of these ancient words and certainly not corroborated by the usage in the New Testament and the speech of Jesus. So we're left with contention number five, which is a, which is a powerful syllogism using different, many different sources in the New Testament. However, this is practically demolished by the the one quote from Revelation. I don't even have to use any other quotes in Scripture except this one. He says that they will be raised from hell. I say, yes, they will at the end of times. It, it says that in Revelation. And then it says after that, after they are standing before the Lord for judgment, witnessing his glory, it says they will see him standing before the throne. And in the Old Testament, God speaks to uh, uh, no, Mo, Moses and says, a mortal cannot look upon me lest he die. Is that Moses or Noah? Uh, it's Moses. It's Moses. Okay, Mo yes, Moses. He says that, so he has Moses hide his face until God walks by, then he can look at his backside as he's walking by. This, um, and then in Revelation it says they stand before the throne, which means they can view him in his full glory, indicating that they will bow before him. And then it says that they will, they will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire if their name is not in the book of life. The book of life has names in it determined by their deeds while they were living. Then it says they will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire in which they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever is not a word that uses eternal that can be interpreted as any sort of temporary time. It means forever and ever. Cool. That's my closing statement. All right. It is very clear. It's becoming even more clear now that, yes, indeed, this view of universalism is virtually incompatible with Scripture. Um, Liam has rightly shown that as, as much as one attempts to uh, harmonize First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 with First Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, as well as Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, and Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it all basically comes down to, yes, in fact, 
the de- the everyone on earth will bow before Christ, but that occurs right before the final judgment. Yes, indeed, there is a one is judged after death, as according, in accordance with Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty seven, and and people are sorted into hell or heaven, but the new heaven and the new earth um, occur after everybody is judged and enters the new heaven and the new earth or is thrown into the lake of fire. Um, therefore, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 is sort of this intermediary stage or rather entering stage into the new heaven or the quote-unquote new hell, the lake of fire, uh, which of course does not contradict other elements of scripture. Um, with that being said, I believe that the argument for universalism as uh, creatively crafted, I would argue, as um, I personally like my con- contention number four because I literally got into a secret gospel that Clement himself purportedly possessed, although it's possible this was forged by a guy named Morton Smith who was a professor at Columbia, although a majority of New Testament scholars allegedly uh, accept this as authentic, although appealing to the majority is, of course, a logical fallacy. Uh, with that being said, uh, clearly the other position, uh, that of the traditional position, makes more sense. I don't think that there is a, comp- I don't think we can use Greek, Hebrew, or uh, the authority or purported authority of St. Clement of Alexandria or the, the biblical text itself, new or old, to prove a universalist position. That being said, I submit to you that the traditional hell position is the correct one. Uh, yeah, that being said, thank you so much for coming and uh, yeah, have a great day.